You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Canton Chapel. Quick pop quiz for you. I want to see if you can name this company. Okay, they started in 1958, and their goal was to bring discount retailing to rural and small town locations. Right? They were the first company to really build that out as their brand. Their goal influenced their offering of everyday low prices. And over time, they eventually beat out their market competitor, Kmart, in a head-to-head competition. If you invested a dollar in their stock in 1970, you would have seen it mushroom 6,000% by 1985. All right, guess is in. If you said Walmart, you'd be like most people, and you'd be wrong. It's Ames Department Store. But I also know that most of us have never heard of Ames Department Store. So what happened? Walmart and Ames started at the exact same time within just a couple of years of each other. Their stocks mirrored each other through the 70s and 80s. They even had basically the same business plan and mission statements. But most of you alive today or watching have never heard of Ames. You've never been in an Ames. They've been bankrupt for years, while as Walmart this last year topped Forbes Fortune 500 as the wealthiest, most profitable company in America, as they have for the last seven years consecutively. So what is the difference? What went wrong? Well, Walmart had something that Ames didn't, Sam Walton. And here's the story. I want to read it to you just really quickly. In the late 1980s, a group of Brazilian investors bought a discount retail retail chain in South America. They sent letters out to 10 American CEOs trying to learn how to run a business. Most of the CEOs either declined or neglected to respond, except one, Sam Walton. When the Brazilians deplaned at Bentonville, Arkansas, a kindly white-haired gentleman approached them, inquiring, can I help you? They said, yes, we're looking for Sam Walton. That's me, said the man. He led them to his pickup truck, and the Brazilians piled in alongside Sam's dog, Old Roy. Over the next few days, Walton barraged the Brazilians with question after question about their country, retailing in Latin America, and so on, often while standing at the kitchen sink, washing and drying dishes after dinner. Finally, the Brazilians realized that Walton, the founder of what may well be the world's first trillion-dollar-per-year organization, sought first and foremost to learn from them, not the other way around. By contrast, Ames' CEO was brilliant, untouchable, bold, but brash. Arrogance, it would seem, is the near unforgivable sin. Humility can make all the difference. And that's true in business. It's true for most of us, isn't it? It's true for my life. There's days when my pride is very calm and quiet. And then there's other days where it's just like churning and foaming right below the surface. And you know what that feels like right? Like there's this untouchability, there's this kind of feeling of immunity, invincibility that comes with arrogance. Arrogance wants you to believe that you're better, that you're higher, that you're untouchable. Arrogance wants you to believe the hype about yourself. 
And I have to wonder if I can get that way personally and you can get that way personally, what does it look like when the church succumbs to arrogance? Well, that's where we're going this morning. We're nearing the home stretch of our summer teaching series through the book of James. And if there's anything that God's taught me over this series is that God has carefully crafted his word um, to undercut my arrogance and to cultivate my own humility, which is really hard for me. Um, This morning, James confronts two arrogances, and I'm going to blow them for you just if you're a note taker. Here's the first one. James confronts the arrogance of judgment, and then he confronts the second arrogance of presumption, judgment and presumption. And as we walk through these this morning, here's what I want you to see. When I seek God deeply, I see myself clearly. When I seek God deeply, I see myself clearly. So let's pick things up in James chapter 4 verse 11. Here's what he says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That's his very first command. It's how he launches in. And a command is not unfamiliar tactic for James. He does this a lot. We know that. Um, But then he expands it to include another verb. He says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And so he expands this. There's two prohibitions in here about judgment. And I want to unpack both of these. First, don't speak evil against your brother. Basically, that means slander. Don't slander somebody. Well, what is slander? Slander is often associated with gossip, but it's very different. Slander is kind of got a, a more dangerous, sinister tone to it. Gossip is taking a true story where it should never go, But slander is making up a story that should never be. Gossip is spreading something. Slander is inventing something. Gossip skews somebody's reputation where slander seeks to kill someone's reputation. But here's what's most fascinating to me about James' word here when he says, don't speak against. That word to speak against was nowhere in the classical Greek world. No philosopher listing off their list of attributes or virtues mentioned that. No Roman Caesar was ever characterized by that term. No hero in all of Greek and Roman literature ever was characterized by this word. James and the early church basically invented this word to describe how Christians ought to use our speech. It's kind of one of the defining characteristics of the early church. They use their words to tear, or not to tear people down, but to lift them up and to honor them. And so when you take that out by extension, the first century world learned how to use honorable speech by watching Christians, which sort of begs the question, how are we doing, church? (laughs) If it were up to us to teach 2020 how to use words in an honorable way, what would they conclude from our speech? Sorry, it hurts me too. But that's this first word. Don't speak against somebody. He says something else too. He says, or judge somebody. And this is his expansion. Don't judge your brother. James's first command is about behavior, but this one's different. This is about attitude. This means that you can sit there quietly, smugly, with a holy little smile on your face, but judging somebody in your heart and never open your mouth. And James says, nope. Again, how we doing, church? And this is where this gets really deep, though, is is why. Now, this idea of judging has massive cultural precedent for James's audience. What's their ethnic heritage? Remember, these are Jewish people. They're Jewish believers in Jesus. 
Here's why that matters. Listen to how God is referred to in the Old Testament. Isaiah 33 says, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge. Isaiah 3, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the people. What's the point? When James's audience would have heard this, don't judge your brother, they would have instantly connected that to God himself. And they would have heard, don't put yourself in a place that is reserved for Almighty God. And so that's what follows in verse 12, where James just says, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy James is doing some really deep theology here. He's correcting us. Here's what he's saying. God is the lawgiver, not you. God is the judge, not you. God is able to save, not you. God is able to destroy, not you. And aren't you thankful, listening today, as James' audience probably was, that the same God who has the power to destroy you out of righteous wrath has designed a way to save you in the cross. And here the, the gospel comes galloping in. Lawgiver? In Christ, all the Old Testament law has been fulfilled. His righteousness is now yours. Judge, in Christ, your sentence has been carried out on him, and so you're innocent and you're free. Now, it's true of you, but let's extend that, can we? Because he's talking about your brother. So that brother or sister about whom you can slander, or that brother or sister you're silently passing judgment about, has already been declared forgiven, adopted child, son or daughter of the king. In Christ, their dignity has been affirmed. In Christ, their identity is made new. In Christ, their standing is justified and their future is secure. Who do you think you are to pass judgment on your brother? And so when you put yourself as a judge over somebody, what you're really saying is, hey, everybody, I know that this person is loved by God and Jesus died for this person and they're saved and they're free and they're valuable and all that stuff. But I think I see something that Jesus missed and I want to tell you all about it. And James says, don't open your mouth. Don't say anything about it. Don't even think about it. Which prompts him to ask the rhetorical question at the very end of verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He might as well be asking, are you really ready to put yourself in the position of Almighty God? He doesn't say there's no such thing as judgment. That's coming. He just says, you're not the one to bring it. That's God's job. You're not him. So don't do what only he can do. Believers looking down their noses at other believers because of whatever issue is really dangerous because not only it offends the dignity of the person, which it always does, but it offends the finished work of an almighty God, and you don't want to do that. So what does this mean for 2020 with our headlines and our news feeds and our pop commentary? I want to give you five choices that we have to make to gospel our heart against judgment. And we're doing a little bit of application here because this is a very big point. And we'll do some more at the, at the, second, um, at the second arrogance we'll get to. But five choices that we have to make to gospel our hearts against judgment. Choice number one, choose the better story. Choose the better story. So I grew up in Greentown and my Huffy White Heat 12-speed was my Tonto. This was the steed upon which I conquered the great wilderness beyond. I ran this thing off ramps all over town that I not so carefully constructed. I sped down State Street from the square at what felt like 90 miles an hour. This was my world. 
Well, there was this uh, dirt hill back in the day behind Greentown School. Um, when there were ball fields back there, there was a small dirt hill that went down into the parking lot. And in actuality, it was probably only about like six or seven feet tall. But in my eight-year-old imagination, it was the Matterhorn. And so I got to the top of this hill and I looked at it and there were bike tracks on it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I could ride my bike down this hill. And so with a little care, courage, and a little thought for my own life, I aligned my wheel, I pointed it, and I shoved off, and I made it, like success, test of boyhood passed. Here's the funny thing. Over the coming weeks and months, I rode down that hill so many times in the exact same place that those tracks became grooves, and the grooves became ruts, until one time, I couldn't get my front bike tire out of the rut in time, and I crash landed on the pavement and skinned my knee in the process. I think stories about people can be like that. The more we tell ourselves a story about somebody else in the private dirt hill of our own mind, the deeper that track goes. And it isn't long before that track is the only place our minds can go. And those tracks become grooves and those grooves become ruts until we wipe out relationship gone. Why? Because we chose the easy story over the true story. And we chose it over and over and over again. So what does it look like to choose the better story? I have a friend here at North Canton Chapel. He's got a little phrase that he uses to stay out of judgment and it's a terrific phrase. And here's what it says. There isn't anyone you wouldn't love if you knew their true story. There isn't anyone you wouldn't love if you knew their true story, which sounds really quaint, but it's actually deep. It's huge. What's he mean? He means that life is hard. Life knocks us around. Life wounds us. It kicks us around. It wounds us. It hurts us. And ultimately, unfortunately, it shapes us. And so relationally, we can either blame people for the wounds that they bring into our, our relationship, or we can join Jesus in bringing healing to those places. We can gospel our hearts against retelling that same easy story over and over again and choose to tell a better story, which leads me to point number two. Choice two that we have to make to gospel our hearts against judgment is to choose to see our heart first, to choose to see our heart first. And guys, this is straight out of Jesus. Here's what he says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? Now, you've probably heard that before. It's a very familiar phrase. Even people with like cursory or limited biblical knowledge will recognize that phrase. It's like saying, don't take the eyelash out of my eye. Your nose is bleeding. Like, tend to the big thing. But here's a detail that you may not have noticed before. Did you ever notice how Jesus introduces this idea? He doesn't say, fix the log first, which he could have, and he eventually gets there. But first, he asks two questions. That's really important because that's the learning. He doesn't say, fix the log. He says, why is it this way? How is this possible? That's the lesson. There's the thing that we need to learn. There's a reason why we're prone to judge others. That's what Jesus wants us to attend to. And in case you're curious, let me just lay it out simple. We're prideful. It's that simple. It makes me feel great to ask you to change your stuff and your problem and not fix mine because then my pride can live on while yours has to die. And so if we're going to answer Jesus, why do I judge others or how can I say that? The answer, honestly, is because pride has so embedded itself into my relationships that I don't even see it anymore. 
It's a scary place to be. Hear me, the biggest limiting factor in every relationship that you have is your own pride. The biggest limiting factor to every relationship that you have is your own pride. We need to choose mindfulness of our own pridefulness. Choose to see your heart first. Third choice we need to make, choose forgiveness. Choose forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing someone from the obligation to repay you for the wrong that they've done to you. Say that again because it's super important to get this right. Forgiveness is releasing someone from the obligation to repay you for the wrong that they've done to you. Here's how this works. When someone does wrong to you, they take something from you. Okay, there's an injustice done. It usually attacks your dignity and it attacks your personhood and it hurts who you are. That wrong actually puts you in a position of power over them, even though you're the victim. It puts you in a position of power because you can choose to hold on to that wrong. You can choose to nurse it kind of quietly. You can hold on to it and it gives you a little bit of power because you can leverage that hurt to control the relationship. But forgiveness is the decision to say, yes, you hurt me. Yes, I'm wounded. And yes, there's some stuff we got to deal with. But I'm choosing to release you from the obligation to make restitution for that wrong. Here's what we do. So if you're watching at home, I want you to do this with me. I'm taking a page from the Ryan Irvin playbook. I'm going to give you a little object lesson. So take your hand and make a fist right where you're sitting. Make a fist. And I want you to hold this fist like white knuckle it. Squeeze it really, really tight. And I want you to hold it for about 30 seconds. Okay, ready? Go. And here's what's happening. As you white knuckle this thing and squeeze it really, really hard, like flex your muscle, what's happening in your brain right now is your brain is actually sending signals down here to almost rewire your hand because your brain is going, oh man, there must be something tight that Brandon wants to hold on to. This is a great metaphor for forgiveness because a lot of times we hold on to pain and hurt just like this, okay? We're almost there, sit tight. Um, and what happens is your fingers and your hand right now are all conspiring to hold on to something really tight because maybe it's safer to do this, right? Now on the count of three, I want you to open up your hand. Ready? One, two, three. And you release it and everybody does the same thing, right? You're probably doing this at home. You're going, ah, it feels weird, right? And your hand, your fingers almost recoil and they come back into this position. It's a good way to think about forgiveness. A couple of reasons. Biologically, it actually takes five times as long to retrain your muscles in your hand. Forgiveness takes time. It's harder than you might think. Forgiveness is a choice. You have to do it. It feels unnatural at first. Forgiveness takes practice. Well, how do you know that you're ready to forgive somebody? When you are more willing to release their faults than rehearse their faults. So we need to choose forgiveness. Fourth choice, we need to choose the right fight. And choose the right fight. I'm going to go here again because I feel like I need to. We need to resist the urge to make someone's position about insert social issue here, the litmus test for fidelity to Christ. We choose the wrong fight all the time, right? And we sit in judgment over people. Like whatever you believe about whatever, that's what it means to be faithful to Jesus, right? And it's ridiculous and it's short-sighted and it's ungospel and it's a distraction from our enemy that some people are just eating up. I'm giving an example. So I saw a post this last week, and um, it wasn't directed at me, so I feel like I could see it a little bit clearly. And the post was something like this. It was addressed to a pastor, and it said, um, Pastor, this whole thing is blown way out of proportion, and if you don't open up your church, you are a coward, and you are buying into a lie, and you are a fool, and, you, and it was just like this whole big layout thing. And it made me sad. 
um, that a Christian could say that to another Christian. Um, but I didn't fall for it, and neither should you. Uh, later, I was on a phone conversation with somebody where they told me, they said, if you ever said, insert racially toned social phrase here from the pulpit, I would never come back to your church. I'm like, wow, that made me a little sad, but I didn't fall for it, and neither should you. Because both of those postures suffer from the same cowardly sickness. Not it's just how stupid it is that someone would hold the church for hostage, which is childish enough, but it's that this political opinion has become so conflated with faith that it's virtually indistinguishable. Conflation is a word we need to understand. Conflation is the merging of two ideas that have nothing to do with each other. But it's happening more and more now, and I think it's breaking God's heart because it so widely misses the gospel. But we do it on all kinds of these little fights all the time because we are made to conquer mountains. We want to win fights, but we pick the wrong fight. And then we're tired when the true fight comes. Let me be clear. Jesus has already given us a litmus test for faithfulness. And it's the one in his word. And it isn't your political opinion. It's not who you're voting for. It isn't what you believe about masks or reopening churches or infectious diseases or who you're, you know, what you believe about Russia or whatever. He's only given us one litmus test. It's in his word. And here it is. He says, you will know them by their fruit. It's the only litmus test for faithfulness to Jesus that has any viability according to our master. And so, to put it this way, are you loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, and good, and full of faith, and self-controlled, and gentle? Are those things growing in your life? And if they're not, you may be fighting the wrong fight. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Are you loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good? Like these things that Galatians 5 gives us these things, self-controlled and gentle. Like these are things that are supposed to come out of the life of a Christian. And if they're not part of who you are, what fight are you fighting? So let's choose to fight the right fight and stay out of judgment. Choice number five, choose worship. Choose worship. Seems like a curveball, I get it, but if you buy the idea that sitting in judgment on somebody is ultimately rooted in pride, then the best way to change my judgmental attitude is to uproot my pride, and the best way to uproot my pride is to remember who I am and who God is. And so here's a, here's a passage I just, well, I just want to read to you quickly. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. This is how Isaiah found God, and watch what happens to him. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him I saw the seraphim, that's a special kind of angel, and each, he, had, he had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Like what a picture that is. The foundations of the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What a picture of worship that is. And then he says, And so I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see how Isaiah's view of God impacts his view of himself? Pride feeds judgment like gas feeds a fire, but worship kills judgment like a bucket of water. Many Christians in the church today need to recover a vision of God that lines up with Isaiah 6. Here's the point. The more you worship God in his role as a judge, the less likely you'll want to be one yourself. 
to choose worship. So that's the first arrogance that James wants us to confront, the arrogance of judgment. And I know it's like two-thirds of where we are this morning. It's just got to be there for us. And we could stop there because there's plenty to think about. Um, in my prep for this message, I got there and I'm like, I think I'm done, God. Like, I don't know if I can say anything else. Um, but we have to go on because James goes on. And we've got something deeper uh, to look at here in the second arrogance. But you can already feel it, can't you? When I seek God deeply, I see myself clearly. But here's the second arrogance. We've had the arrogance of judgment. Now we have the arrogance of presumption. Let's look in verse 13. James says, Come now, all you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast or you're, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, that is sin. So he's taking arrogance and boasting and sin. He's lining all of that up so we see it. And I love the invitation, though, right? How he starts. He says, come now, all you who say, which, by the way, is all of us to varying degrees. It's like James has this dinner table spread out, and he kicks out a chair, and he says, come on, come here and have a seat. There's some things that we need to talk about. There's something that you need to hear. Well, what's his main concern? It's right there in verse 13. He says, come you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He takes that verbal external boast, and again, we're all there to varying degrees, and then he almost interrupts himself mid-sentence with verse 14 where he just says, no, 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 wait, you don't even know what your life is like. You don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. And then he has none of these great rhetorical questions. He says, what is your life? And we can stop and have a moment of silence there. Because it's one of those great rhetorical questions that James gives us that makes us go, like, yeah, what is my life? And he supplies the answer. He says, you are a mist. You are the morning fog, and you're going to burn off by 10 o'clock in the morning. You're not going to be here very long. What's his point? James is concerned that we think too highly of our lives. And because we think too highly of our lives, we think too highly of our abilities. And when we think too highly of our abilities, we think too highly of our plans. And when we think too highly of our plans, we just excuse God from the picture altogether. And James says, no, please don't boast like that. We become confessing Christians, saying all the right things, but living as functional deists. Deism, this Terrible heresy that says, yes, God may exist, but he has nothing to do in the day-to-day -day of your life. That's you. You get to make those decisions. And James says, that's boasting and arrogance. Now, we got to correct something here, something that James is not saying. Is James saying that planning for tomorrow is sinful? No, of course not. James just wants to point out our human proclivity to out-strategize the spirit, which is possible when you think about it. It should sober all of us. So he gives us a better way in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. And here again, James sounds like the voice of Proverbs, doesn't he? That counsels us with words like, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, Proverbs 16, 9. 
Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand, Proverbs 19, 21. Or commit your way to the Lord and he will establish your plans. Did you catch what all those Proverbs have in common? There's this hinge in the middle. Like there's my plan, my dream, my goal, my idea, my strategy, but God holds the trump card. And these Proverbs, like a centuries-long echo chamber, all leading up to James' words here, all conspire to teach us, yes, it's really all well and good to dream and to think big and to plan and to strategize, set goals. But the God of the universe reserves his unquestioned right to nix any of them. Far better then, isn't it, to learn from him, to come close to him, to seek him, to submit to him, to set your affection on his kingdom and his purposes rather than build your own. The arrogance isn't planning, it's presumption. The arrogance isn't strategy, it's selfishness. The arrogance isn't purpose, it's prayerlessness, which gives rise to James's implication. Initiatives for God should never be severed from intimacy with God. Initiatives for God, all these great things that we undertake, all these great noble things that we want to do, should never be severed from intimacy with God. Or if you can forgive the crassness, seek God and shut your mouth. This is devotion before decision, posture before planning, seeking before strategy. But I want to sit here for a moment um, because there's another elephant in the room that we need to see. This whole will of God thing. Because that's James's corrective, isn't it? He says, instead, you need to say, well, if the Lord wills, which sort of begs the question, okay, how do you know the will of God? And we've got like just a couple of minutes to nail that down. <laughs> so good question. I want to give you a way of thinking about God's will that's consistent with what James says here. And it's either going to help you or it's going to frustrate you, but I promise you it's going to give you something to think about. So here we go. Um, in my experience as a pastor and as a learner and listener of people, um, whenever we talk about God's will, typically people fall into one or two extremes, okay? I tend to fall into this first one, and I'll show you what it is in a minute. Both of these extremes are equally appealing, equally damaging, equally terrible, and equally unbiblical, so follow me. Here's the first one. Extreme number one is analysis paralysis. Um, I used to get caught up in this all the time, so I used to wonder stuff like this. What if I took a left turn instead of taking a right? What if I married the wrong person? What if I went to the wrong college? What if I chose the wrong job? What if we, we moved into the wrong house? What if we painted the, wrong, or the wall the wrong color? Right? What if I made one decision way back here that was outside of God's will, and then logically all the rest of my life is outside of God's will because I can never go back and fix that one thing that I did wrong? Right? And I know some of you have asked that question too, or you've wondered that because it's super common. And I hurt for you because I know the logical conclusion of that is nothing but frustration and anxiety, and God doesn't want you to live in those places, especially when it has to do with his will. There is no magic dot of God's will that you have to hit exactly right or you mess up God's plan for your life. You are not that strong. You are not that powerful, and God is not that small. But here's what we do next. I'm not going to leave this one yet because this one actually gets talked about and it gets talked about in churches because I've heard it. We look for all kinds of like mystical, tribalist, almost shamanistic, animistic things to dislodge our courage that force us to make a decision. And we say things like, I saw this sign, right? It, was, it couldn't be a coincidence. God's trying to teach me something through the shape of the clouds in the sky. I'm like, what? 
We say things like, well, God closed that door, so I guess that must not be what I'm supposed to do, or God opened that door, so that must be where I have to go. Now, I get why we talk that way, because it sounds really pious, it sounds really spiritual, and it sounds really sensitive. The only problem is, it just isn't biblical. You can look all across the New Testament. It only comes close one time where Paul's talking to the Corinthian church and he describes his mission work like an open door. It's just not biblical. It's a great idea to think about those things. I wish it were that way, but it's nowhere. But this is the first extreme, analysis, paralysis, and it leads to anxiety. Second extreme, way over here. This one is fatalism. Fatalism, it's this, it sounds like the opposite at first of this one. Fatalism goes like this. Well, God's going to do whatever he wants. So I'm just going to lay down and let him, right? I abdicate myself from any decision-making whatsoever. And it's the logical conclusion, twisted, that, well, since God is sovereign and I can't really trump his sovereignty, then what can I do? I can't really make a wrong decision. I can't affect anything. So just, I guess, que sera, sera. I'm along for the ride. Whatever will be, will be. Now, this one doesn't end in anxiety. This one actually devolves into apathy. And it goes like this. If I can't affect anything, then I'm not responsible for anything. And if I'm not responsible for anything, then I can't really be blamed for anything. And so let it ride. All bets are off. Now, those two extremes at first sound like complete opposites when it comes to understanding God's will like James wants us to. But they share something in common, and it's this terrible, small-minded, ungospel, fatal flaw. They both shift all of the blame to God. And they release me from any responsibility. The first goes, well, it's God's fault. He didn't open the door. I couldn't make that happen. Second one says, well, it's God's fault. I mean, I have no responsibility anyway. He didn't do it. You see the similarity? I have no responsibility. Just wash my hands of the situation. And so we are indecisive and we are stuck. So let me suggest to you a more biblical way to view the will of God like James is encouraging us to here. There are only two verses in the New Testament that explicitly speak of the will of God applied to believers, and here they are. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is a great one. It says, This is the will of God, colon, your sanctification. That means to be made holy. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's one verse. Another verse, Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Those are the only two verses that explicitly talk about the will of God applied to believers. And they're both basically saying the same thing, and here it is. God's will for you? Be more like Jesus. And I know, half of you right now watching, you went, yeah, 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 I know, but what do I actually have to do? What do I do? That that's what you have to do. Be more like Jesus. Obey what Jesus has already shown you to do in his word. Let me say something that might mess with you a little bit, just so you hear me clearly. God does not care if you buy a Chevy or a Ford. What if he really doesn't care? What if God doesn't care if you get this job or this job, so long as you have a heart that's inclined to honor him with any job? Or if you want to tie it to James... What if God doesn't care if you go to this city or that city so long as you seek him, pursue him, and honor him, and live for him in whatever city? A truth about God's will. God's will for you is to evaluate every decision through one lens. What makes me more like Jesus? 
and then to use the wisdom that comes with cumulative obedience built over a lifetime to make Christ-honoring decisions. It isn't whispers, signs, fleeces, open doors, and impressions. It doesn't work that way. We're so prone to overcomplicating this God's will thing. How many problems in our life would be solved if we just obeyed what God has already showed us in his word? And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, sought out how to implement those things into our life. The Holy Spirit will guide you and convict you, but he's only going to do it with the stuff that God's already shown you. And it's all right there for us. What's our problem is we just don't want to read it (laughs) because we're prideful. It actually is that simple. God's will is not something you've got to find. God's will is something you just have to do. And I think that's James's point here. Be humble. Obey God. Do what he's already told you to do. When I seek God deeply, I see myself clearly. So in our divided days that we live in, judgment is so easy. Presumption may not be so much because we have no idea what tomorrow holds. I think we feel that one a little bit more acutely. But I want to be very clear as we close. Your role is not to be God, to sit in authority, judging somebody else silently or with your mouth or with your fingers or with your thumbs. It's not what God wants you to do. The second arrogance shows us that. What God wants for you is to be in those places, in those relationships, in those conversations, but being a representative of Christ there. Because that's the best part of your story. It isn't what you know. It isn't what you think. It's who God has made you. And he's not done with you yet. He has made you. He is making you. And one day he will completely finish the job. That's called glorification. And none of us are there yet. And so we're all in process. So with that in mind, seek God deeply so we can see ourselves clearly. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is true and you gave it to us so we could live by it. You've shown us the way and you said, walk in it. Father, forgive us for the times we are so prone to point fingers, to nurse and encourage and feed our own pride. God, I know I do that. I don't want to be that way. I want love for you and worship of you to eclipse my need to be right. Father, help us all in that way. You're so good to us. Lead us like a shepherd because that's what you are. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.